Good morning to all of you. In 1868, Frederick Douglass wrote a letter of commendation to Harriet Tubman. Douglass is known for his escape from slavery to later become an important author and national leader of the abolitionist movement. Tubman also escaped slavery and dedicated her life to rescuing enslaved people using a network of activists and safe houses known as the Underground Railroad. In his commendation to Tubman, Douglas wrote this. The difference between us is very marked. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been public, and I have received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have wrought in the day, you in the night. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while the most you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scarred, and footsore bondmen and women whom you have led out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt, God bless you, has been your only reward. His letter continued. Much that you have done would seem improbable to those who do not know you as I know you. It is to me a great pleasure and a great privilege to bear testimony for your character and your works and to say to those to whom you may come, that I regard you in every way truthful and trustworthy. The occasion of the letter was this. A biographer was about to tell Tubman's story, life story to the world. Therefore, she asked Douglas, as a reputable source, for a letter of commendation. Commendation carries the idea of approval. It was, a it was valuable to have a person of Douglas's stature commend her. His public approval was validation of her life's work. As Christians, we have a similar experience. We look for God's approval. Not to earn our salvation, but to commend our faith that our life testifies to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we're not alone. There's a long list of believers before us, all with a testimony of faith, which gained God's approval and received God's commendation. When your creator validates your redemption, it promises a glorious future. And since the commendation comes from God, it takes the entire testimony into account, including things that only God sees. He sees the hardships that other people don't understand. He sees the limitations that other people don't appreciate. And he sees how we've been wounded by people who are oblivious to our suffering. But we endure these things because of the glorious future God's promised us, our faith looks forward. 
So if you would, please turn to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. That should be page 1007 in the Bible under the seat in front of you. And take out your outline entitled, Faith God Commends. As you're turning, recall the warnings in Hebrews. Each warning was followed by a call to persevere in faith. That was especially true at the end of chapter 10, in verse 39, where it says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the call for faith has been building throughout this book. But now it's ready to reach its culmination in chapter 11. So here we go. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. But he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The Bible often talks about faith, but the author of Hebrews puts it in a specific context. Faith is the opposite of apostasy. It relates to the warnings in Hebrews. Faith is the necessary response of a believer who's tempted to abandon Jesus Christ, particularly when faced with persecution. God requires us to trust him alone. He's given us every reason to believe him, and he wants full and undivided allegiance. That's faith, faith that God commends. We'll look at this from three aspects. One, faith that believes. Two, faith that testifies. And three, faith that perseveres. So point one, faith that believes. The first verse sets the tone for chapter 11. It's a call to respond to the previous chapters, to have assurance and conviction of what God secured for us in Jesus Christ. It's already ours, but it's not fully realized, not yet. We hope for these things even though we can't presently see them, which is what we read in verse 1. 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The sentence has two parallel parts. But they aren't saying the same thing. They're interacting with one another. The second part, convictions of thing, conviction of things not seen, explains the hope. And the hope strengthens the assurance. To elaborate, I'll express it this way. Our hope is explained by our conviction about the power of the future world promised by God, but not yet seen. So then our hope in what God's promised is what strengthens our assurance. It's not thoughtless or clueless. Assurance doesn't come from blind faith, just wishing something were true. It's faith strengthened by the conviction that God will fulfill what he's pledged and that you will be the recipient. What are these promises that God's pledged to fulfill? It's what the author of Hebrews has been telling his listeners. He's described the things hoped for, point A. I'll briefly summarize them from the first few chapters. Jesus the one for whom and by whom all things exist, who sits at God's right hand, has promised to bring many sons to glory. He became a human in order to ensure the complete fulfillment of what he promised to do in creation. That meant delivering humanity, specifically the people in his household, from bondage to sin and fear of death. He accomplished this by making atonement for them and becoming their merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. I hope that sounds familiar. If we love God and we believe he's trustworthy, then we have assurance of these things. They're real blessings from God and we share in them. We enjoy these realities in the present, certain that they'll be realized in the future. This assurance provides stability and support in the midst of difficulty. Assurance of the things hoped for was critical for the people who originally heard this message because they were living under the threat of persecution. But we're such skeptics, aren't we? Have you ever said, I'll believe it when I see it? Of course you have. I have too. Because we all need a witness to believe something's true. Or we want to see the proof ourselves. So when verse 1 tells us to have conviction about things not seen, point B, it might bother us. But it shouldn't. Why? Because even though these things are not seen... God has given us a witness. We have proof of his faithfulness. We can see someone who proclaims the truth about the unseen things. What do I mean? What do we see? We see Jesus. Hebrews 2.9. But we see him... We see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The person who knows God's saving grace is convinced by the witness of Jesus and forever changed by it. Jesus demonstrated the reality of the unseen things. Do you believe, do you see Jesus? Do you? Or are you just blindly hoping everything will turn out okay? If you don't see Jesus as the object and substance of your faith, then you don't have faith God commends. Because faith isn't thoughtless. It's not wishing. It's believing. So your faith must be firmly established in what Jesus Christ has done. Then you can look forward in hope to a glorious future with assurance. But you need to be convinced about the things that aren't seen by the person you can see. Jesus. You have his testimony in scripture. You can see for yourself how he became human, how he died, how he was resurrected and vindicated by God, how he ascended to God in glory. Yes, there's much to believe that is not seen. Not yet. We can't see God's kingdom or his heavenly city or his new creation in its fullness. Not now. But don't let that discourage you. Read the scriptures. Believe what God's saying. Trust the clear and visible testimony of Jesus and grow in your conviction about the unseen things. Realities that we don't see now will be seen in the future. God wants you to take him at his word. And to be convinced, recall Hebrews 6.17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Think about this. If you have an employer, then you act with the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen every day. How's that? Well, you make a daily effort to do your job well in order to get paid. And if you perform your work, we have assurance that our employer will pay us in return. So you continue to do your job and perform your work every day, even though you don't see the money right away. You trust the money will be there. You aren't constantly checking your employer's bank account to see if they can make payroll. That's their part of the bargain, the arrangement. You just keep working, trusting the money will be there. You wait for it to be deposited into your account on the appointed payday. And when it appears, you're glad to have it. But you probably don't breathe a big sigh of relief because you expected it to be there. You're already convinced it would appear at the right time. 
Now, do you trust God like that? Do you? We believe our employer will pay us for our work, and for the most part, we don't think anything of it. But they're just humans, running human institutions. So how much more should we trust God who's faithful in every way? And what's the greatest display of his faithfulness? Sending his son as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Let's be convinced by God's faithfulness so that we can act in faith and look forward. Commentator William Lane said this, Faith is an effective power directed toward the future. It springs from a direct personal encounter with the living God. The forward-looking capacity of faith enables an individual to venture courageously and serenely into an unseen future supported only by the word of God. And we're not left without examples. We have plenty. Hebrews hinted at this back in chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but, here it is, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Because after telling us what faith believes, he describes what it looks like in action, in the lives of people whose faith is worth imitating. So faith looks like something. It testifies to something. We can't see each other's faith, but we show our faith by our words and actions. These are, there are moments of truth, certainly, but a testimony really takes place over time. It tells everyone whether or not we're willing to stake our life on God's promises. So God's faithfulness to his own word is critically important for our faith. Now to point two, faith that testifies. Verse two says, For by it, faith, the people of old receive their commendation. Who's the commendation from? It's from God. Receiving commendation means they gain God's approval. On what basis? On the basis of their faith. Their lives demonstrated that they had faith and believed God. This is the faith God gives to his righteous ones, the people he's adopted into his family. In this context, the people of old lived before Jesus, before he came to open the new and living way of salvation through his atoning work on the cross. So its faith is seen in the Old Testament. Today, by faith, people believe a Savior has come. Before Jesus, the people of old believed a Savior would come. But it's the same faith. The faith that saves us, save them. We're all trusting God to fulfill what he promised. 
And we saw that in the quote near the end of chapter 10, verse 37. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk 2.3, when he says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. So from the foundation of the world, it's been true that God's righteous ones live by faith. It's always been by faith. And the testimony of faith for these old people of old was founded on the faithfulness of God. God has been faithful from the very beginning. That's point A, God's faithfulness in creation. Because our testimony about God comes from God's own testimony about himself. Our faith testifies to knowing God's faithfulness to his own word. In this, we imitate the faith of the people of old. And like theirs, our faith produces a testimony too. Do you see that in verse 3? It starts, by faith, we. We. That includes all of us. We're not bystanders. We're participants. It's not about someone else's faith. This is our faith, too. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Everyone experiences God's creation. It's all around us, on earth, in nature, in space, everywhere. But many people don't attribute these things to God's creative powers. That's because they can't see the invisible creator. However, Christians see the same creation and by faith understand that God created it all. But this verse is saying even more than that. It states that the universe was created by God's word. That's critical. While we can see creation, it doesn't tell us everything we should know about our invisible creator. We need God's word for that. And because God created everything by his word, the scriptures tell us how to understand his purpose and plan for his creation. Seeing God's visible creation through his word is how we understand the faithfulness of our invisible creator. But God's purpose for creation wasn't simply to make things that we see on the earth and in space and in nature. He had a purpose for humanity. That purpose involved a plan for humanity's redemption. That plan was established in creation by our invisible creator. But how do we know he'll be faithful to complete it? How do we know he just didn't wind the whole thing up and just let it run and leave it alone? We know it because he created everything by his word. 
And in his word, God declared that there would be a redeemer for humanity. Then he brought Jesus into human history to do God's will, which he accomplished on the cross. So the redemptive work is finished, but it's not yet complete. However, we're convinced it will be completed because we can see Jesus and thereby understand the faithfulness of our invisible creator. We can, so we see God's creation. We also see God's intervention into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet we can't see God's reward for us, not yet, not in its fullness, but his word testifies to it. So if we seek him, we have every reason for faith. In a visible reward. That's how verse 6 connects to verse 3. Look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith isn't just believing there's a God. It's believing God's own testimony in scripture and that he'll bring it all to pass according to his own will. Faith looks forward to a visible reward that's secure in the hands of God. Do you have confidence in God's creative purpose to reward us? Do you believe he'll be faithful to it because of his word? We know he exists by creation. We know he exists because he sent Jesus Christ into human history. But belief in God's existence alone doesn't please him. Faith is more than that. It's certainty that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. 1035. That's what gives us the endurance necessary to persevere in faith and receive our commendation from God. Now let's examine the testimony of the first person to die for his faith and receive God's commendation. He was killed because he did God's will. Point B, Abel, righteous in death. Abel didn't have our understanding of how God's redemptive plan has unfolded in history. He lived closer to the dawn of creation. So his faith in God's redemptive plan really looked forward. But he'd heard firsthand about God's promise of a redeemer. Genesis 3.15 from his parents, Adam and Eve. So his faith was founded upon God's own faithfulness to his word. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's, Abel's testimony is that God accepted him as righteous. It says, he was commended as righteous, and God showed this by accepting his gifts. 
So Abel desired the righteousness that comes from God, the only acceptable righteousness. And he demonstrated that desire for that righteousness by obeying God. He obeyed by offering the sacrifice God commanded. Abel believed and acted on God's word, and it cost him his life, literally. But in death, Abel persevered in faith. How do we know that? We know it because it says through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Yet how do we know that Abel's obedience is what's being stressed here? Well, Abel knew the sacrifice God commanded, but his brother Cain did too. That's clear in Genesis 4, because God said to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. God couldn't have said that unless Cain had known the sacrifice God commanded and refused to obey. God called Cain to obey, just like Abel. But instead, Cain killed Abel, his brother, and showed no remorse. You see, Cain couldn't have God's righteousness on his own terms, so he refused to obey God with destructive results. And he went his own way. That could be you this morning, too. Maybe you're going your own way. However, God's been clear about the sacrifice he commanded. It's Jesus. Our sin needs to be atoned for by Jesus' sacrifice. Only then can we be accepted by God. Only Jesus' righteousness can save us. By faith, we stake our life on that conviction. But you may be staking your life on some other hope. You may be hoping that God will accept something from you that's not what he commanded. If so, you're acting like Cain, not Abel. You're relying on a faulty hope. It'll result in judgment for you. But even now, if you cast aside your faulty hope and embrace the sacrifice of Jesus, your only hope of righteousness... Will not God accept you? Indeed, he will. His word testifies to it. So Abel's an example of someone who died in faith. But now let's consider a person who lived in faith in an exceptional way. Point C, Enoch, pleasing in life. Like Abel, Enoch lived during the early chapters of Genesis, and according to the record in Genesis 5, it appears his life would have overlapped Adam's by a few hundred years. So he would have heard firsthand and had an account firsthand of God's faithfulness to his creation. And verse 5 tells us, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch's testimony is that his life pleased God. 
He received that commendation from God while he was still among the people living on the earth at that time. Genesis 5.22 says Enoch walked with God, and then it says he was not found. That means he somehow disappeared from among the people. But the remarkable thing is not that he disappeared. What's remarkable is what God did with him. After 365 years of life on earth, in that situation, God took him. The implication is clear. Because his life of faith pleased God, he was taken to be in the presence of God. Enoch's pleasing life was proof that God had redeemed him and given him the righteousness that comes by faith. Both Abel and Enoch are positive examples of what verse 6 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because God made their faith possible. And by their faith, God was pleased. Abel died for God because of his faith. Enoch lived for God because of his faith. So whether we live or die, we can't please God without faith. Do you ever wonder whether you'd be willing to die for Christ as a martyr? Do you? It's a hard question for us living in our present society because people aren't often killed for their faith in Christ as they have been in other societies at different points in history. So we don't live with this pressure as a daily reality. But the question isn't actually all that difficult if you put it in context. Because if we aren't living for Christ in the present, then it's hard to imagine that we would be willing to die for him in the future. Do you hear me on that? If we aren't living for Christ in the present, then it's hard to imagine that we might be willing to die for him in the future. The ease and comfort we enjoy in our present society actually works against our faith in some ways. We don't get a realistic test of how firm we might stand under the pressure of persecution. Often we think of the Christian life as this, accept Jesus as your savior, Live a better life until you die. But the scriptures counter that kind of thinking if we pay close attention. When God accepts us into his family, we actually die first in Christ. Then we live for him. That's what baptism pictures for us. Death to self. Alive to Christ. So our life belongs to Christ. We no longer have a claim on it. Therefore, losing our life is something we're gladly willing to do for his sake. Because it isn't ours. It belongs to him. And living for Christ in the present is the natural outflow of that realization. Jesus said this himself. You can't really mistake his meaning. 
Luke 9.23. And he, Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The cross is an instrument of death. Unless we deny ourselves and pursue Jesus Christ in the death he died, we'll never have salvation in the life that he lived. Doesn't necessarily mean we have to die on a cross. But it does mean that if we don't die to sin, we can't live for Christ. Living for Christ, a life devoted to following him, is what salvation looks like. And it will indeed cost us our life in some way. Why wouldn't we live for him if we've already died with him? If that's true of us, then our present life is poured out and spent for Christ in anticipation of living with him forever. And if we're ever killed for the sake of Christ as a martyr, it's just making visible for the world something that was already an invisible reality for us. Have you lost your life for the sake of Jesus Christ? Or are you still trying to save your life by going some other way? Losing your life for Jesus is the only way he'll deliver you from bondage to sin and fear of death. Then you'll find your life in Christ. And you'll be completely dependent on Jesus as your merciful and faithful high priest. Give Jesus your full devotion. Entrust yourself completely to his faithfulness to give you your promised reward. Our faith testifies to God's faithfulness in creation. God's given us a righteous sacrifice by which we can come into his presence. That's how we're saved. Testifying to that is important, but the ultimate test is perseverance to the end. How do we respond when things get really difficult? We need assurance that God will preserve us in his judgment. And we need conviction that we'll enter God's presence in the fullness of his new creation. That's faith that perseveres, point three. Our final example of faith in this morning's passage is Noah. Verse five, or verse seven, I'm sorry. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Point A, Noah preserved in judgment. God warned Noah about unseen events. Can you imagine survival in a world-wide flood and life in a new world? Noah had never seen anything like it. I'm sure it sounded incredible. Perhaps as incredible 
as a future resurrection and judgment sounds to us. Something so disruptive to life as we know it that it's hard to believe or even imagine. But no one knew it would come because he believed God's word. And not only that, he acted on it. It says he constructed the ark for the saving of his household. Building this ark wouldn't have been something he accomplished in his garage one afternoon. The development of materials and construction probably took hundreds of years. It was an enormous project, a lifetime of work that was visible to the people of his time. But it was God's way to preserve him in judgment. Noah took these actions in reverent fear. This included telling people about God's warning. Peter called Noah a herald of righteousness. So as he built, Noah explained what he was doing. But everyone was probably scratching their heads and questioning his sanity. Because no one outside of Noah's own family heeded the warning. Thus, Noah's life of faith condemned the world. But that same life of faith saved Noah's household for new life on earth. So Noah's faith impacted the world in different ways. Verse 7 says, Noah, by his life of faith, became an heir of righteousness. Point B. He's a powerful example for us to imitate. What's your impact on the people around you? What's our impact together as a church? We're living in similar times. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. How will you use the rest of your life? Because that's all you have left, correct? The rest of your life? You can't go back and do life over. You can't hit the restart button. The past is in the past. What you have left is the rest of your life. But will you give what you have left to God? Will you? Will you do his work so that you can proclaim his faithfulness and receive his salvation? It'll change you in some important ways. And it'll be an encouragement unto salvation for God's people. But your faith will also mean condemnation to those who don't listen. That was the witness of Noah's life. Noah did what Hebrews tells us to do. He held fast to God's word. His life of faith proved that out. Why not dedicate the rest of your life to holding fast to God's word? Why not? What kind of impact do you think that'll have on you? What kind of impact do you think that'll have on the people around you? For instance, start writing down all the passages you find in Scripture that encourage you to look forward in faith. 
Study and meditate on the meaning of those passages. Talk about them to encourage other people. Internalize them. So the truth of those words bolster your endurance as a Christian when life becomes difficult. Really difficult. And if you're struggling to persevere in faith, heed God's warning like Noah did. Just think about the warnings we've heard in Hebrews. Pay attention. Don't neglect this great salvation from God. Don't fall away and hold Jesus up to contempt. Don't go on sinning deliberately when you know the truth. These are all serious warnings to believers. Will you heed the warning? The warnings and imitate the faith of the people of old. Noah, Enoch, and Abel. These warnings are a means of your sanctification. To stir you up, you and the people around you, to love and good works. And just don't hear the warnings. Do something about them. Act in reverent fear like Noah did. When you hear the warnings, they should give you pause. They should make you think and consider. Am I really willing to lose my life for Christ's sake so that I might find it? But don't stop there. Take action. Put your faith into action. Why? Because if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then you're an heir of salvation, like Noah. Hebrews 2.2 declares that Jesus is appointed heir of all things. Those who want to share in that, to inherit salvation, must actually follow Jesus. So imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, in that letter of commendation to Harriet Tubman, Frederick, Frederick Douglass signed it, your friend, your friend. It was a statement of respect. Her life's work meant a great deal to him. He wanted that to be evident to her and to everyone who read his letter. Jesus made a similar statement of relationship to his disciples. He assured them that they'd be commended by God. A life dedicated to serving God and doing his will is worth it. Jesus said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The author of Hebrews has been describing this to us. He's explained everything the Father has made known about his work to redeem humanity. Jesus did the work of the Father. He made purification for sins and became a merciful and faithful high priest for us, sitting at the right hand of the Father. If we do God's will, we have a sure hope to receive what he's promised. And our confidence is that we're more than servants to Jesus. We're his friends. 
We're his brothers and sisters. We've been adopted into his family, so we're in his household and under his protection. By faith, we believe and act on that confession. What more could we ask for or need? Let's put our full trust in the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Let's live by faith. And let's believe that God is faithful to his word. Then let's testify to his faithfulness and persevere because we know he rewards those who seek him. My prayer is that God would commend all of us for our faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we want your commendation. We want to live by faith. We thank you for the work that you did through Christ. We understand that we're completely dependent on him for all things. And we glory in that, Lord. And we ask you to trust in that and give you our full allegiance and our full devotion in all things. Lord, help us not to love our life, but to lose our life for the sake of Christ so that we might find it. And so that we might be in your presence on that day to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and that we might enter into your kingdom to serve you forever as glorified people, your brothers, your sisters, the people of your household under your protection, now made pure and blameless in your sight to serve the living God. We praise you for this great salvation that we know and that we've come to love. Help us love it all the more. In Christ's name, amen.